0: Dr. Johnston. Uh, First of all, let me add my welcome to you. Thank you for coming to the Bueritas Forum, and also to Dr. Craig and Dr. Um, I have some housekeeping to take care of, so bear with me, if you will. Um, As you can see, we have two audience mics, and at the end of the uh, presenters' uh, uh, talks, we will have the opportunity for Q&A. And um, we'll ask you if you want to address your question to Austin, Dr. Darcy, that you come to this mic, and to Bill, and to Craig, to the other mic. Okay? And I will be alternating. That's my role tonight, to point back and forth. Alright, All right, in addition, um, please note that the presentations will follow the following time frame. Um, There will be 20 minutes for the initial presentation on the part of each speaker, then 12 minutes, then 8 minutes, then 5 minutes, and you're going to keep us on track, right? Okay, and then uh, for the Q&A, please, we ask that you keep your questions short, and then the person to whom the question is addressed will have 2 minutes to respond, and then the other party will have a minute to counter-respond. In addition, um, there should be cards that will be passed out that you'll be able to, um, to pass on to the speakers. Um, you also have cards on your chairs. would appreciate your uh, candid responses, particularly if you have comments regarding how we can make this better next time around. Thank you. Without any further ado, we'll begin.
1: Thank you. Good evening. I want to begin by thanking the Veritas Forum for inviting me to participate in this important debate. Uh, Dr. Dacey and I had a terrific debate last spring at Purdue, and I think I can confidently say that you'll never hear a better case for atheism than his tonight. And I only hope that I can do as well in presenting the case for Christian theism. There are lots of good arguments for the existence of God, but tonight I'm going to restrict myself to just two. First, a cosmological argument for a personal creator of the universe. And secondly, a historical argument for the creator's self-revelation in Christ. Let's turn then to my cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, premise one seems obviously true. It's rooted in the metaphysical truth that something cannot come from nothing. Moreover, this premise is constantly confirmed in our experience. So the really crucial premise is premise two. I'm going to present four separate arguments on behalf of premise two tonight. The first argument is based on the impossibility of an actually infinite number of things. It goes like this. An actually infinite number of things cannot exist. A beginningless universe involves an actually infinite number of past things. Therefore, a beginningless universe cannot exist. Now, in this argument, premise two is obvious. If the universe never began to exist, Then, prior to today, there have been an infinite number of past causes or events in the history of the universe. So the crucial premise is premise one. The best way to prove it is to give examples that illustrate the various absurdities that would result if an actually infinite number of things could exist in the real world. Take, for example, one of my favorites, Hilbert's Hotel. This is the brainchild of the great German mathematician, David Hilbert. Hilbert invites us to imagine a hotel with an infinite number of rooms. And suppose that all the rooms are full. There is not a single vacant room throughout the entire infinite hotel. Now, suppose a new guest shows up asking for a room. He's out of luck, right? Wrong. No problem, says the clerk. And he immediately shifts the person in room one into room two, the person in room two into room three, the person in room three into room four and so on out to infinity. As a result of these room changes, room number one now becomes vacant and the new guest gratefully checks in. But remember, before he arrived, all the rooms were full. But the situation becomes even stranger For suppose that an infinite number of new guests show up at the desk. Of course, of course, says the clerk. And he proceeds to shift the person in room 1 into room 2, the person in room 2 into room 4, the person in room 3 into room 6, and so on out to infinity, always moving each person into the room number twice his own. As a result, all of the odd-numbered rooms become vacant and the infinity of new guests is easily accommodated. And yet, before they came, all the rooms were full. In fact, the clerk could repeat this process infinitely many times, and he could always accommodate new guests, even though there are no empty rooms. But Hilbert's hotel is even stranger than the great mathematician made it out to be. For suppose some of the guests start to check out. What happens then? Suppose the guests in all the odd-numbered rooms check out. In this case, an infinite number of people have departed, but there are still an infinite number of people left in the hotel. But now suppose instead that the persons in rooms four, five, six, and so on checked out. At a single stroke, the hotel would be virtually emptied, and only three people would be left. And yet, the same number of guests checked out this time as when all the guests in the odd numbered rooms checked out. You subtract identical quantities from the same quantity and get contradictory answers. In summary, since an actually infinite number of things cannot exist, and the beginningless universe involves an actually infinite number of past things, It follows that a beginningless universe cannot exist. The second argument that I'll give on behalf of premise two is based on the impossibility of forming an actually infinite number of things by adding one member after another. It goes like this. A collection formed by adding one member after another cannot be actually infinite. The series of past events is a collection formed by adding one member after another. Therefore, the series of past events cannot be actually infinite. Now, once again, premise two seems pretty obvious. The series of past events is not a collection all of whose members coexist. Rather, it's a collection that was formed by adding one member at a time. So the crucial premise is premise one, that a collection formed by adding one member after another, cannot be actually infinite. Sometimes this is described as the impossibility of traversing the infinite. In order for us to have arrived at today, existence has, so to speak, traversed an infinite number of prior events to reach the present event. But before the present event could arrive, the event before it would have to arrive. But before that event could arrive, the event before it would have to arrive, and so on and on back to infinity. No event could ever arrive, since before it could happen, there will always be one more event that had to have happened first. Thus, if the series of past events were beginningless, the present event could not have arrived, which is absurd. But now a deeper absurdity bursts into view. For if the present event could somehow arrive after an infinite number of prior events, then why didn't the present event arrive yesterday? Since by then an infinite series of past days had already elapsed. No reason can be given why the present event arrived only today instead of at any time in the infinite past. At any point in the infinite past, the present event should have already happened, which is absurd. In summary then, if a collection formed by adding one member after another cannot be actually infinite, then it follows that a beginningless universe cannot exist. The third argument for the universe's beginning is a scientific argument based on the expansion of the universe. In 1929, the astronomer Edwin Hubble observed that all of the galaxies are receding from one another. Incredibly, what Hubble had discovered was the expansion of the universe predicted on the basis of Einstein's general theory of relativity. This discovery has the astonishing implication that as one reverses the expansion and goes back in time, the universe becomes progressively denser until one arrives at a state called a singularity which constitutes an edge or boundary to space-time itself. It marks the beginning of the universe. The Big Bang model thus describes a universe which is not eternal in the past, but which began to exist a finite time ago. Many attempts have been made to avert the absolute beginning predicted by the Big Bang model, but it's been the overwhelming verdict of the scientific community that none of them is more probable than the Big Bang Theory. There is no mathematically consistent model which has been so successful in its predictions or as corroborated by the evidence as the traditional Big Bang Theory. In sum, according to Stephen Hawking, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. And that, of course, is the second premise of the cosmological argument. The fourth argument for the beginning of the universe is also a scientific argument. This one based on the thermodynamic properties of the universe. According to the second law of thermodynamics, processes taking place in a closed system tend towards states of higher entropy as their energy is used up. So what happens when the law is applied to the universe as a whole? The answer is grim. The evidence indicates overwhelmingly that the universe will expand forever. As it does, it will become increasingly cold, dark, dilute and dead. The galaxies will turn their gas into stars and the stars will burn out. Thereafter, protons will decay into positrons and electrons so that space will be filled with a rarefied gas so thin that the distance between a positron and an electron will be about the size of the present galaxy. The entire mass of the universe will be nothing but a cold, thin gas of elementary particles and radiation, growing ever more dilute as it expands into the infinite darkness, a universe in ruins. But this raises the question, If in a finite amount of time, the universe will achieve a cold, dark, dilute, and lifeless state, then why, if it has existed for infinite time, is it not now in such a state? If one is to avoid the conclusion that the universe has not in fact existed forever, one must find some scientifically plausible way to overturn the findings of physical cosmology so as to permit the universe to return to its youthful condition. But no realistic and plausible scenario is forthcoming. Most cosmologists therefore agree with physicist Paul Davies when he concludes that the universe's low entropy condition was simply put in as an initial condition at the moment of creation. On the basis of these four arguments, we have good grounds for affirming the second premise of the cosmological argument, namely that the universe began to exist. From the two premises, it follows logically that the universe has a cause. Such a transcendent cause must possess a number of striking properties. As the cause of space and time, this cause must transcend space and time and therefore exist non-temporally and non-spatially, at least without the universe. This cause must therefore, be changeless and immaterial, since something can be timeless only if it is unchanging, and something can be unchanging only if it is immaterial. It must also be unimaginably powerful since it created all matter and energy, space and time. Finally, And most remarkably, such a transcendent cause must be personal. Two reasons can be given for this conclusion. First, the only entities we know of which can be timeless and immaterial are either minds or abstract objects like numbers, but abstract objects don't stand in causal relations. Therefore, the transcendent cause of the origin of the universe must be an unembodied mind. Secondly, only a free agent can account for the origin of a temporal effect from a timeless cause. If the cause of the universe were an impersonal, mechanically operating cause, then the cause could never exist without its effect. For if the sufficient condition of the effect is given, then the effect must be given as well. The only way for the cause to be timeless but for its effect to begin in time is for the cause to be a personal agent who freely chooses to create an effect in time without any antecedent determining conditions. And thus we are brought not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe but to its personal creator. Therefore, from the cosmological argument alone, we may conclude that a personal creator of the universe exists who is uncaused, beginningless, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and unimaginably powerful. At this point, the question arises as to whether this personal creator of the universe has revealed himself in some special way that we might know him more fully. Well, Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be just such a special revelation of God, the God of Israel, whom Jews worshipped as the only true God and the creator of the universe. And Jesus validated his claim by his resurrection from the dead. Now, most lay people think that the resurrection of Jesus is something you just believe in by faith or not. But there are three facts recognized by the majority of New Testament historians today which provide good evidence for Jesus' resurrection. Fact number one. On the Sunday after his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. Among the many reasons which have led most scholars to this conclusion are the following. One. The fact of the empty tomb is multiply and independently attested by early sources. Two, the empty tomb narrative shows no significant signs of legendary development or embellishment. Three, the fact that it is women whose testimony was regarded as worthless rather than men who are the discoverers of the empty tomb supports the historicity of the empty tomb narrative. Four, the earliest Jewish response to the proclamation of the resurrection presupposes the empty tomb. I could go on, but I think enough has been said to indicate why, in the words of Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist in the resurrection, and I quote, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements concerning the empty tomb. Fact number two, On multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. This is a fact which is universally acknowledged by New Testament scholars for the following reasons. One, Paul's list of eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection appearances in his letter to the Corinthians dates to within five years after Jesus' crucifixion guaranteeing that such appearances were witnessed by various individuals and groups. Two, the appearance narratives in the Gospels provide multiple, independent attestation of the various appearances. Even the skeptical critic, Gert Lüdemann, therefore concludes, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Finally, fact number three, the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that Jesus was risen from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. Think of the situation the disciples faced following Jesus' crucifixion. Number one, their leader was dead. And Jewish messianic expectations included no idea of a Messiah who instead of triumphing over Israel's enemies would be shamefully executed by them as a criminal. Two, according to Jewish law, Jesus' crucifixion as a criminal exposed him as a heretic, a man literally accursed by God. And three, Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead to glory and immortality before the general resurrection at the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples suddenly came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. Luke Johnson of Emory University states, some sort of powerful transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. And N.T. Wright, an eminent British scholar, concludes, that is why, as an historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. In summary, then, there are three facts agreed upon by the majority of scholars who have written on this subject. Jesus' empty tomb, his post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' belief. Down through history, various naturalistic explanations of the facts have been offered. For example, the conspiracy theory, the apparent death theory, the hallucination theory, and so forth. Such hypotheses have been almost universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. Given the failure of all naturalistic hypotheses, I think we're justified in inferring that the best explanation is the one given by the eyewitnesses themselves. God raised Jesus from the dead. The rational man can hardly be blamed if he concludes that on that first Easter morning, A divine miracle occurred. So, in conclusion, on the basis of these two arguments that I've sketched this evening, I think we're justified in concluding that God exists.
0: Thank you. That's (laughs) great. Dr. Dacey. You will have 20 minutes, Dr. Dacey.
2: Thank you. Thanks to the Veritas Forum and thanks to you all for being here and to Bill. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Um, A student from Fresno told me last night that this is the Bible Belt of California. I didn't know that. Um, I'm from the Corn Belt myself, the Midwest. Uh, Actually, as a teenager, I was uh, born again as a Christian. And although I've since left the faith, uh, my interest in questions of God and meaning and morality has stayed with me. Now, I guess as a professional skeptic. Um, It's not as easy as you might think. You know, believers get to go door to door saying, hello, I'm with the church and I'm here to tell you the good news. Um, Skeptics like, hello, my name's Austin and I'm not really sure why I'm here. (laughs) But that said, why am I so sure that there's no God? Well, you might think it's just futile to argue that God doesn't exist because, you know, you can't prove a negative. Well, actually, I think there are a couple of ways to prove that a thing doesn't exist. One is to show that the thing couldn't possibly exist because the very idea of such a thing literally makes no sense, like the idea of a round square. The other way is to look very carefully and see if it's there. If you look as best you can for a thing and you still can't find it, then sometimes you can reasonably conclude that it isn't there. Both methods have been used to argue that God isn't there. Uh, Some have argued that God is like a round square, that some of his properties like being all knowing and also transcending time and space are incompatible. They just couldn't possibly go together. Tonight, I'll use the look and see method. I'll defend an evidence based case against theism. I'll argue that in light of the evidence, atheism is more probable than theism. In particular, there's insufficient evidence for theism and there's overwhelming evidence for atheism. Now, I'm not suggesting you can literally look and see if God's there. Here's an illustration. Imagine that it's your birthday and your roommate has promised to bake you a cake when you come home from class. So you come home, arriving, uh, you arrive home, expecting to encounter a few things: um, pleasant aroma in the air, maybe some cracked eggshells, mixing bowls in the sink, but you find none of this. What you find is an unopened box of cake mix and a dozen eggs in the fridge, no roommate to be seen. That is, you fail to find a number of things you would expect to find had the cake been baked, and you find a number of things you would not expect to find had the cake been baked. Well, even before opening the oven and looking in, you can reasonably conclude on the basis of this evidence that the cake isn't there. In a similar way, we can reasonably conclude that God isn't there. We do this by considering what things we'd be likely to find if theism were true and what things we would be unlikely to find. I'll focus on five varieties of this kind of evidence, although there are others. First, the hiddenness of God. Second, the success of science. Third, the connection between minds and brains. Fourth, evolution. And finally, the abundance of pointless suffering. In each area, we can ask what we would expect the world to be like if there were a supernatural person who's all powerful, all knowing, perfectly good, who created the universe and who seeks a loving relationship with humanity. And in each area we discover that the world turns out not to be like that. Let's begin by thinking a bit about why we're here. We're here for a serious discussion of whether God exists, but is this really a question about which there can be a reasonable doubt? I mean, according to the book of Psalms, the fool hath said in his heart that there is no God, right? Well, if you think all unbelievers are just bonkers, then there's no point in debating one, right? The fact that we're here then suggests that there is such a thing as reasonable unbelief. But herein lies the first kind of evidence against theism. If this world were the creation of a supreme being who seeks a loving relationship with us, we would expect him to ensure that everyone believes in him or at least everyone who's capable of reciprocating this relationship. I mean, if you don't even believe in him, you can't have a relationship with him. Instead, we find that countless billions have lived and died without ever believing in God, and they can't be blamed for their lack of belief, since many tried earnestly, deliberately um, to find reasons to believe, but couldn't notice. I'm not just talking here about non-religious people, but Anyone who disbelieves the God of classical monotheism that is the subject of tonight's debate. For example, there are about 800 million Hindus, uh, 350 million Buddhists, 225 million Taoists on this earth and, and many others. Why hasn't God, the God of theism, revealed himself to all of these people? It doesn't take much imagination to think of ways that an omnipotent being could provide evidence that would be persuasive to all reasonable people. I mean, suppose that at the same time, everywhere around the globe, um, a booming voice declared. Hello, this is God. What? No, it's not Morgan Freeman. God, you know, Alpha Omega Omega. So that would make me a convert Um, or how about less Hollywood? God could simply give everyone a clear, unmistakable inner awareness of his presence. But clearly, none of this happens. The philosopher J.L. Schellenberg, who pioneered this line of argument, has called the general situation divine hiddenness. The hiddenness of God is highly unlikely given theism, on the other hand. It's precisely what one would expect if there were no God at all. Related to, but distinct from divine hiddenness, there's another way that God is absent from the world. And this offers another kind of evidence that favors atheism over theism. It has to do with the natural sciences like uh, physics, chemistry, biology. These sciences seek to explain phenomena like fire or earthquakes or cancer by reference to natural causes they don't appeal to causes like the intentions or actions of a, of a divine agent that are thought to stand outside of nature. But nevertheless, they've been extremely successful at explaining the world and, and enriching our understanding, enabling us to predict and control nature. Every electric light you turn on, every aspirin you take is a reminder of that. The agnostic philosopher Paul Draper has recently pointed out that an all-powerful being who seeks a loving relationship with us would probably get involved in our universe. And so scientific accounts of that universe would have to take his actions into account. Well, if theism were true, then it would be extremely surprising that science can ignore God, as it does, and still explain so much. So the success of naturalistic science favors atheism over theism. It was once widely believed that the human mind must be grounded in a special immaterial substance or soul. This philosophy of mind is called mind body dualism. The dualist picture of the person as an immaterial, immortal soul caught within this material, mortal coil is found in, in many religious traditions. But most cognitive scientists now reject dualism, and for two main reasons. First, it's not at all clear how an immaterial soul could cause changes in the physical body as it's supposed to do. The soul is supposed to animate and control the body. Think about it. Souls are thought of as purely non physical. They can't be weighed or split in half, heated or cooled. They lack mass, electric charge and so on. But then how could they possibly have a cause and effect interaction with bodies which are thought to have only these physical properties? Second, there are lots of specific correlations between mental phenomena and brain activity. For example, language use and spatial reasoning appear to be localized in particular areas of the brain. Brain injuries cause very distinctive changes in perception and cognition, even personality, what you might call our soul. Some mental diseases like schizophrenia have been shown to have a genetic component but why would any of this be the case if the mind were independent of the brain? It appears mind-body dualism is false with respect to us, but dualism is more likely given theism than given atheism. That's because theism is already committed to the existence of at least one immaterial mind, namely God. He's conceived of as a disembodied consciousness. And further, according to many traditions, we are made in the image of God. And that means we have an essential commonality with God in virtue of our spiritual everlasting substances. Atheism, by contrast, makes none of these commitments. And so it gives us no expectation at all that people have souls. The discovery that we have none then supports atheism over theism. Our brains are the most complex things we've ever encountered in the universe. It's no wonder that many people look on us as masterpieces of design that provide evidence for the existence of an intelligent designer. Nevertheless, if we look at how life actually arose through biological evolution, we find a number of features that are highly unexpected, if theism were true. The evolutionary process, it turns out, is massively wasteful and inefficient it works by randomly trying a huge number of possible designs and discarding all the errors this would be like a person who tries to build a bridge by randomly throwing up every possible configuration letting them all collapse until through dumb luck one remains standing well that's not design. that's crazy additionally because evolution has to work by blindly tinkering with pre-existing designs, it leaves organisms with many traits that are functionally useless or even dysfunctional. Like the optic nerve in the human eye, it is routed back through your retina unnecessarily from a design standpoint, um, causing a blind spot. I mean, think about that. The organ designed for sight has a blind spot Um, Then there's the appendix. What's that all about? Um, It doesn't do anything, but oh, by the way, it can get infected and you can die. And did I mention the birth canal isn't quite wide enough to really give birth? As the uh, Scottish Enlightenment philosopher David Hume said, this looks more like designed by government committee than by a perfect being. The inefficiency and imperfection of biological evolution are just far more likely on the assumption that it's a blind causal mechanism with no mind and limited power than on the assumption that it's the instrument of an all powerful rational intelligence. It would be really surprising if such a being chose to create life in such a way. Therefore, evolution is another kind of evidence that favors atheism over theism. Finally, the evidence from pointless suffering. Every single day, an attack on children occurs that's ten times deadlier than the attack on the World Trade Center. It comes from preventable disease like measles, malaria, and pneumonia. Doctors know malaria is a leading killer, claiming over one million children each year. It's usually fatal in young people if not treated almost immediately. The child's final experiences often include fever, shivering, severe pain in the joints, headaches, coughing, vomiting, generalized convulsions, and coma. Now, we would expect an all-powerful, perfectly good God to prevent this suffering unless he had some reason not to. Notice that not just any reason will do. For example, it will be no good to claim that God just doesn't care about the suffering of children. No, his reason has to be such that it morally justifies his failure to prevent the suffering. You might be tempted to think that there's some greater good that can only come about if these thousands of children are allowed to die in pain every day or some greater evil that might obtain if they were spared. Well, is there? We can answer that question by carefully considering all the kinds of goods and evils that we can think of. For example, does humanity learn anything useful about malaria that couldn't otherwise have been learned? Apparently not. We already know everything we need to know to prevent it and treat it. Does it inspire you and me to be better people to strive to save the innocent victims? For the most part, no, it doesn't. But even if it did, why should they suffer so that we can be more virtuous? That's not a morally justifying reason anyway. Now, you might say, why should we finite beings think that we could know the reasons that are in God's infinite mind? Here's the answer. If God loved us, then we would be the first to know the reason he permits bad things to happen to us. A loving father who has to take his child to the hospital for a painful treatment will explain to her why he does what he does. Now, maybe we're like very small children. We can't even fathom the reasons that God has. But in that case, a loving parent would do his best at least to make sure that the child feels his presence and comfort and receives some assurance that there is a reason even if she can't see it right now. So there's every reason to think we especially, we especially would be aware of any justifying reasons God has. What we in fact find is that many of those who undergo terrible anguish, like Holocaust sufferers, report feeling totally abandoned by God in their time of need. And of course, many victims of disease, starvation, or natural disaster die very young, having never believed in him. So if after considering the matter carefully, we're unaware of any kind of state of affairs that would justify God in permitting suffering of this kind, we can reasonably conclude that there is no such state of affairs. But then the pervasive suffering caused by malaria is pointless. I don't have to tell you that other examples of pointless suffering from AIDS to earthquake to tsunami can be multiplied beyond the breaking point of all our hearts There is no more powerful evidence against theism than this. To conclude, have we proven a negative? Well, prove is a tricky word. Sometimes it means produce reasons uh, that establish a claim beyond any possibility of doubt or error. We haven't done that. And of course, common sense and science doesn't rise to that standard either. What we have done and what um, can be done is to indicate a body of evidence that when taken together makes atheism significantly more reasonable to believe than theism. The hiddenness of God, the success of the naturalistic sciences, the physical embodiment of minds, the carelessness of the evolutionary process, the abundance of pointless suffering, and the lack of God's comfort in the face of it all make atheism more probable. But suppose I'm wrong about what the evidence shows. Suppose contrary to fact, I'm wrong. There is a Supreme Being. To me, actually, that's not the end of the story. As I said, theism is more than just the belief, the belief that God exists. As the Bible says, even the demons believe and shudder. No, theism also says that it's appropriate, if not obligatory, to trust and love and praise God. Well, why? Presumably because he's so great uh, and he created all this. He's essentially morally perfect. He necessarily does what's best. But think about that for a moment. If someone necessarily does what's best, then it's impossible for him to do otherwise. Now, trust is when you give someone the benefit of the doubt. You have confidence that he'll do what's best, even though it's possible that he won't. With a morally perfect person, there is no doubt, and therefore there's not even an occasion for trust What about praise? We praise a person for actions when they result from something that's up to her, like her will or traits of character that she's developed. We don't praise someone for actions she couldn't help doing any more than we blame water for boiling. Well, if God is essentially morally perfect, then his morally important decisions, such as the decision to create the world, are not up to him. They flow necessarily from his nature, which is also not up to him. Therefore, his actions are not morally worthy of praise. Finally, love is a relationship between moral equals, isn't it? Such as best friends or spouses. But God is supposed to be infinitely morally superior to us created flawed beings. Granted, there is a sense of, of love in which you can say you love things that are lesser than you. Maybe your pet hamster or Clay Aiken. I don't know. But surely this is not the sense that God is supposed to love us, right? And it's hard to see how his relationship to us could count as genuine love. Strictly speaking, the debate tonight is about the existence of God, yet most of us are concerned about more than this. They're not just telling you that this guy is out there, they're telling you that this is the guy for you. Well, tonight Professor Craig and I will be discussing the case for and against the existence of God, but... I just want to point out, it's worth remembering that even if Craig were to succeed in showing that there is a perfect being that created all things, he would not thereby succeed in showing that this being can be a father, a friend, a person you can really relate to. And in this sense, even if God exists, theism could still fail. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Dr. Craig, you have 12 minutes to respond.
1: Well, thank you, Austin, for that challenging case. I told you it would be good. Now, in this speech, I would like to examine Dr. Dacey's arguments on behalf of atheism to see whether they pass philosophical muster. And all five of his arguments share the same basic form. Step one is to say that if God existed, then we would expect to see blank, and you fill in the blank. Step two is, but we do not find blank, and therefore one concludes that God does not exist. Now, I want to make two general comments about this style of argumentation. First of all, it's enormously presumptuous Basically, what Dr. Dacey is saying is that if God doesn't fulfill our expectations, then we should conclude that he doesn't exist. But who says that God has to fulfill our expectations? How can we predict with any confidence what God would do if he existed? If we find that our expectations aren't met, then isn't it the better part of discretion and humility to reexamine and perhaps revise those expectations, we're simply not in a position to dictate to God that He has to act in accordance with our expectations. But secondly, notice that Dr. Dacey must prove both of the premises of each of his arguments to be true in order to prove that God does not exist. But as we'll see, in each case, at least one premise, and sometimes both, is false or at least unproven. Take for The key premise is that if God existed, He would ensure that everyone who can have a loving relationship with him believes in Him. Well I think that's patently false. Uh, given human free will, it is logically impossible for God to ensure that everyone believes in him. What is true is that if God existed, he would ensure that everyone has the nature and conscience and the witness of his spirit in our hearts. Reasonable faith is available to every single person. Well, what about the second argument, based on the success of science? Here the key premise is that if God existed, he would act in the world in ways that science must take into account. Well, again, I think that's plainly false. Miracles, by their very nature, are unpredictable and unrepeatable. But science only deals with predictable and repeatable phenomena. When science confronts an unpredictable or unrepeatable event, then he tends to just ignore it as a scientific anomaly. And thus, science takes no cognizance of miracles. In fact, I would revise this premise to state, if God existed, he would create a universe operating according to certain natural laws so that it is open to rational exploration and discovery. And that guarantees the success of natural science. Well, what about the third argument, based on the mind-brain connection? Again, I think both of the premises of this argument are false. For example, take the first premise. If God existed, we would have an immaterial soul that is independent of the brain. I think this is pure speculation. Uh, We have no way of knowing, apart from experience, what sort of creatures God would create if he existed. In fact, if Dr. Daisy's arguments against the possibility of mind-body interaction are correct, then it is logically impossible for there to be creatures composed of mind and body. So we could hardly expect that God would do the logically impossible. And thus, if his arguments for his second premise are correct, then the first premise is necessarily false. And so this argument is literally self-refuting. One premise refutes the other. Moreover, the second premise, that the mind or soul is entirely dependent upon the brain or the body, goes far beyond the evidence. At best, the evidence shows a correlation of mental events and brain events, but not uh, dependency. Worse, though, this premise is self-defeating. For if the mind is entirely dependent upon the body, then causation between mind and body is a one-way street. The body can affect the mind, but the mind cannot affect the body. And that is incompatible with freedom of the will. Everything you believe is determined by the physical stimuli that you receive through your body. But then, what about Dr. Dacey's belief? that his second premise is true. In that case, his belief is not the result of rational reflection or choice on his part. Rather, it's just physically determined for him. His believing it is no more rational than his having a headache. And so this premise is incapable of being rationally affirmed, and so it is literally self-defeating. Well, what about the fourth argument from uh, evolution? This argument has real problems. Uh, Not only are the premises false, but the argument is logically invalid. So that even if both premises were true, the conclusion still wouldn't follow because the argument violates the rules of logic. To make the argument valid, you have to add an additional premise, three. All life on earth is the product of purely naturalistic evolution. You have to add that premise. But that premise goes far beyond the evidence, which at best supports microevolution within various natural kinds. In fact, if naturalistic evolution really is as inefficient and imperfect as uh, doctor Dacey claims that it is, then all the less reason we have to believe that life on Earth is the product of Purely naturalistic evolution, given the incredible complexity of biological life. So this argument also tends to be self-defeating. The more evidence you have for the one premise, then the less reason you have to believe the other premise. But leaving that problem aside, why couldn't God use evolution as his means of creating life? Well, here Dr. Daisy's key premise is that if God existed, he would create living things by an efficient process. Well, I don't see any reason to think that that's true. Uh, As the philosopher Thomas Morris has pointed out, efficiency is important only for someone with limited time or limited resources or both. But God has unlimited time. And unlimited resources at his disposal. For such a person, efficiency is just no big deal. So I don't have any confidence in Dr. Dacey's assumption that God would not use evolution as a means of generating biological complexity. Finally, what about his fifth argument based on the suffering in the world? Well, I think it's undoubtedly true that the pain and suffering in the world is a tremendous emotional obstacle to belief in God. But that doesn't mean that this is a good intellectual argument against belief in God. I'm persuaded after much reflection on this problem that as difficult as pain and suffering might make it emotionally to believe in God, Intellectually, uh, the atheist is really uh, shouldering an enormous burden of proof here, which he cannot successfully sustain. Dr. Dacey's key claim here is that pointless suffering exists. Now, that claim is extraordinarily difficult to prove. In order to prove this claim, the atheist must prove the further claim that God does not have good reasons for permitting the suffering in the world. But how could the atheist possibly know that? When some incident of suffering enters into our lives, how could the atheist possibly know that God does not have a morally adequate reason for permitting it? Well, Dr. Dacey is aware of this problem, and so he gives a further argument to show that God cannot have good reasons for permitting suffering. But the problem is that both of the premises of that argument are pretty clearly false. Take the first premise that he gave. He says, we don't know of any kinds of goods that would morally justify God's permitting suffering. Well, I think that's just obviously false. I can think of all sorts of goods that would justify God's permitting suffering. Uh, From a Christian point of view, speaking in the broadest terms, uh, God's purpose for human history is to bring as many people freely to a saving relationship with himself, thereby securing their eternal life and eternal happiness. And I think it's not at all improbable that only in a world pervaded by natural and moral suffering Would the maximum number of people freely come to know God and his salvation? So to carry his argument, Dr. Dacey would have to show that there is a possible world that God could create, which has less suffering than the actual world, but has an equal amount of the knowledge of God and his salvation. And that's just pure speculation. But that's not all. The second premise, I think, is also wholly implausible. That premise says that if there were goods that justify God's permitting suffering, then we would know what they are. Well, I don't think that's true. The atheist seems to presuppose that if God has good reasons for permitting suffering in our lives, then he's somehow obliged to tell us what they are. But that seems very implausible. It would turn the universe into a haunted house. Uh, Every time I stubbed my toe, a voice would whisper, here's why I'm permitting this. And this would really get to be annoying after a while. (laughs) Worse, what Dr. Dacey is asking for may well be logically impossible. For in certain cases, if God were to say, here's why I'm allowing this, then we might act in such ways as to prevent the justifying good from coming about so that the suffering in that case would take place if and only if the suffering did not take place, which is logically impossible. So in that case, Dr. Dacey's premise is necessarily false. So I don't think his argument that God cannot have good reasons for permitting the suffering in the world is very good. So Dr. Dacey's arguments, I think, don't really stand up well to philosophical scrutiny. All of them are based on premises which are are least unproven, if not obviously false, two of them are self-refuting and one of them is logically invalid. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Dr. Dacey, uh, 12 minutes. Thank you.
2: Could the universe have existed forever? Well, Dr. Craig uses two philosophical arguments and one scientific argument for a negative answer to this question. Now, the philosophical arguments say that the universe could not have existed forever because the mathematical notion of an actual infinite, like, say, uh, a library with infinitely uh, many books, yields self-contradictory results. You get absurdities and, and contradictions. So, you check out all of the uh, odd numbered books from an infinite library, and an infinite number remain. But you check out all the books numbered four and higher, and only four remain. Yet, paradoxically, in both cases, you remo- removed the same number of books from the library, right? An infinite number of books. Well, if we try to describe this situation using arithmetic, we. We can't do it. Um, Infinity minus infinity in one case gives you four. And in another case, it gives you infinity. Well, I'm not sure I see the contradiction here. I mean, infinity minus infinity is undefined in mathematical terms, technically. Um, But that can't stop you from checking books out of a library. Um, Why? Well, because books are not numbers and removing them is not the same thing as subtraction. as the philosopher West Morriston observes, quote, if a person, quote, checks out one or more books, he does indeed remove them from the library, but he's not subtracting them in the mathematical sense. If you remove the set one, three, five, and so on, the remaining set is zero, two, four, four etc up to infinity. Whereas if you remove the set four, five, six, the even numbered set, the remaining set is only zero, one, two, and three. Well, this fact about the library is remarkable. It's strange even, but I don't see the logical contradiction. Um, Morriston again, addition and subtraction of numbers is one thing. Constructing a new set by adding new members or removing old ones is a quite different thing. Operations of the second sort may be possible even when operations of the first sort make no sense or are undefined. Now there is an intuition here and the example of Hilbert's hotel taps into this intuition. The intuition is that a section of the hotel or the library must be in some way lesser than the totality. Uh, The thought that the section and the totality have the same number of elements seems to violate this intuition. Right. But there might be another way to make sense of the intuition. I mean, we can say that the set of all odd numbered books is clearly lesser than in a real sense, lesser than the entire library. It's lesser in the sense that it's a proper subset of all the books. The library as a whole contains the set of odd numbered books. And in this way, the whole can be seen as greater than one of its parts, despite the fact that they both have the same number of elements. So I think we can satisfy the intuitions that. Uh, Craig's example of Hilbert's Hotel are tugging on um, without having to collapse mathematical operations like subtraction into real physical operations. After all, we're talking about the physical universe here, not math. It would be strange, actually, if a philosopher's intuitions uh, rather than physicists research would tell us whether the universe is infinitely old. I mean, if the recent history of science has taught us anything, it's that our theoretical and intuitive grasp of the world, um, especially us philosophers, is often worlds away from our uh, intuitive beliefs. As one journalist put it, science now tells us that atoms are 99.9% space, but we still have real trouble walking through walls. What about the scientific argument? I have the slide on how did the universe begin, please? I'm a bit puzzled by Dr. Craig's use of the Big Bang as empirical confirmation of the claim that the universe began to exist um, from nothing. That's not how many mainstream physicists would characterize it. Brian Green, professor of physics and mathematics at Columbia University, writes in his latest book, The Fabric of the Cosmos, a common misconception is that the Big Bang provides a theory of cosmic origins. It doesn't. The Big Bang is a theory that delineates cosmic evolution from a split second after whatever happened to bring the universe into existence. But it says nothing at all about time zero itself. And since, according to the Big Bang theory, the bang is what is supposed to have happened at the beginning, the Big Bang leaves out the bang. It tells us nothing about what banged, Why it banged, how it banged. Now, as physicists trace the expansion of the universe backwards in time, they reach a point at which their current theory just breaks down. Uh, Many cosmologists think that a full account will await a new insight that synthesizes uh, Einstein's relativity theory with quantum mechanics. That's the science which deals with very, very small systems. There are lots of contenders for such a uh, unified theory, but no clear victors as of yet. In 2002, the National Research Council reported on 11 unanswered questions in physics and astronomy, and one of them is, how did the universe begin? So I think it's fair to conclude that our scientific knowledge of the origins of the universe is just nowhere near complete, and therefore it would be premature at best to use it as a premise in an ambitious theological argument such as as Craig's. Now, in any case, the postulation of a transcendent cause of the cosmos would be of no help. This is because it presupposes a radically new and mysterious kind of causation, totally unknown to science. The causes that we know about, they precede their effects in time. By contrast, God's creative action, as described by Dr. Craig, does not precede its effect in time, since God transcends time, right? Craig asks, how could a timeless cause give rise to a temporal effect? He answers that the timeless cause must be a person. Well, what could that mean? Persons as we know them do things in time. Furthermore, causation as we know it involves the rearrangement of some pre-existing material as when you say build a sandcastle uh, out of pre-existing sand, well, God's action is supposed to produce its effect out of nothing at all. Well, what could that mean? If Craig wants to make uh, wants theism to make sense of the origins of the universe, he owes us at least a rough sketch of how such causation is supposed to work. I'll now turn to the. Uh, argument from the revelation of God through the resurrected Christ. I concede that if God raised Jesus from the dead, that would be pretty good uh, evidence that God exists. Uh, But what reasons have we been given to believe that's what happened? Craig has pointed to three facts that he says are best explained by the hypothesis that Jesus was resurrected by God. First, the the empty tomb. He says that all the alternative explanations of what happened to Jesus' body have been rejected by New Testament scholars. I think that's just a a gross overstatement. The truth is that some hypotheses are more plausible than others, and each leaves some questions unanswered. But isn't that just the nature of inquiring about the distant past? For example, it's not implausible to suppose that after a temporary internment in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb during the Sabbath, Jesus' body was moved to a common grave, as was customary for criminals. While this leaves some questions unanswered, it's surely more probable, given everything that we know about the world, than the hypothesis that Jesus was miraculously raised from the dead by God. As for Dr. Craig's other two facts, the post-crucifixion appearances and the disciples' belief in the resurrection, there's no corroborative evidence for these claims besides the Gospels themselves. Later mentions by non-biblical and non-Christian writers were references to the gospel accounts. Well, we have a good general grounds for being skeptical of the gospels as reliable historical accounts of, of these kinds of things. Most people think that the Christian belief in the resurrection was actually based on the gospels. But historically, it was exactly the other way around. The gospels were written between the year 65 and, and 100, a generation after The Apostle Paul and others began preaching the story of the risen Christ to the early Christian communities. The Gospels were not written by Jesus' disciples or any other eyewitnesses to his life. In fact, almost nothing is known about the authors except that they were partisans of this new religion built on the belief in the resurrection. The Gospels, as you and I know them, were produced by a careful process of selection and editing and rewriting undertaken over a long period over 100 years by early Christians in order to record the approved theology of the emerging church and help it to expand. In some, we can explain the empty tomb without resorting to the extraordinary claim that Jesus was raised from the dead by God and Christ's appearances and the disciples convictions. The other alleged facts to which Dr. Craig appeals are based solely on the New Testament, not on any reliable historical documentation. Just a few details. There's no evidence that the the Jewish response that uh, that Dr. Craig referred to, if genuine, arose from firsthand inspection of the empty tomb. For all we know, it might have arisen after the year 70 in the current era when the first known story of the empty tomb, Mark, was written. Well, by then, it would have been too late to cross check the facts. Critics of the story back then were basically saying, "Okay, um, suppose the tomb was empty. That doesn't necessarily mean that Christ rose from the dead. Well, critics are still saying that today and haven't gotten a great answer. Um, could the Jews have refuted the Christians just by pointing and producing the corpse? Well, even if they knew where it was, it probably would have been too late to identify the body. According to Acts 2, Christians did not begin to publicly proclaim uh, the resurrection until nearly 50 days after Jesus's death around the time of Pentecost. Well, you don't need, you know, CSI Jerusalem to guess how a body might look after 50 or more days in Middle Eastern weather. Uh, finally, the skeptical uh, biblical scholar Gareth Ludeman is a good friend of mine, and I asked him uh, whether he thought that uh, Christ, uh, the risen Christ, appeared to the disciples. He was quoted by Craig uh, in that vein. He said in which uh, there were uh, Situations in which Jesus appeared to them as there is in Christ. Um, and he said, no, that's not what he meant. Garrett actually believes that the um, disciples were having hallucinations. Um, and he said that Craig was just misusing his, his words there. But even if the tomb were empty, you know, it, it wouldn't be surprising that people started seeing Jesus. After all, we know where Elvis Presley is buried, and that doesn't stop people from seeing him all the time. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Craig, uh, follow up eight minutes
1: in his last speech. Dr. Dacey dealt with some of the arguments that I presented in my first speech for uh, the existence of God. I argued first uh, by a cosmological argument that whatever begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. He doesn't deny the first premise, but he does dispute two of the four arguments that I gave for the beginning of the universe. The first argument, you remember, was based on the impossibility of an actually infinite number of things. And I showed that if you tried to have an actually infinite number of things, this would result in various absurdities. And what he does here is quote from an article by Wes Morrison saying that uh, removing the people from the hotel or books from a library is not the same as subtraction. Well, I've read Morrison's article. In fact, I've published a response to it, and I think he's simply mistaken. Pick up any dictionary on mathematical terms and subtraction will be defined as the diminution or the diminishing of a quantity by another quantity to uh, get a quantity which, if added to the the diminuend, will uh, uh, add up to the original quantity. And that's exactly what you're doing when you subtract books from a library or people from a hotel. And what you arrive at is self-contradictory answers with respect to infinite quantities. And that's why uh, infinite subtraction is not defined in mathematics because it leads to contradictions. And the only way to avoid this is to say that such quantities do not exist in reality. The contradiction again is, you subtract identical quantities from identical quantities and you do not come up with identical answers. He says, well, we can diminish the force of these by translating them to set theoretical terms. A a set has a proper subset which has the same number of members as the original set. That's merely a way of obscuring the absurdities. The reason David Hilbert gave his hotel illustration was precisely to show the absurdities that would result when these set theoretical notions are translated into a real world of books and people and hotels and so forth. So it does seem to me that you are stuck with unavoidable absurdities and even logical contradictions if you say that there can exist an actually infinite number of things. Since a beginningless universe would involve such an actually infinite number of things, I think we can conclude that a beginningless universe does not exist. Now, the second argument I gave was based on the impossibility of forming an actually infinite number of things by adding one member after another. Notice that Dr. Dacey didn't even offer a response to this. Even if you could have an actually infinite number of things, you couldn't get it by adding one member at a time. Uh, In the case of the infinite past, that would be like trying to count down all the negative numbers ending at zero. It's it's an impossible task, and I've yet to hear a refutation of that argument. My third argument was based on the evidence for the expansion of the universe. And here he quoted from Brian Greene's book, The Fabric of the Cosmos, which I have here before me, on page 272 is the quotation that he gives. Unfortunately, Dr. Dacey, I think, has misunderstood what Brian Greene says. What Greene says is that the standard Big Bang model doesn't explain the bang. Notice that he doesn't deny that it occurred. He just says the theory doesn't explain it. Well, now, what does Greene mean? Well, he goes on in that chapter to explain that according to Einstein's equations, the universe could either be expanding or contracting. And so he asks, why is the universe expanding rather than contracting? And he answers, for many years, cosmologists took the expansion of space as a given and simply worked the equations forward from there. That is what I meant when I said the Big Bang is silent on the bang. Such was the case until 1979 when Alan Guth showed that we can do better. Guth made a discovery that finally filled the cosmological silence by providing the Big Bang with a bang. His discovery gave rise to what has become known as inflationary cosmology. He says it provides a front end for the standard Big Bang model. In doing so, inflationary cosmology resolves key issues that are beyond the uh, reach of the standard Big Bang theory. But he acknowledges that the inflationary approach, and I quote, leaves unanswered the question of what happened at the initial moment of the universe's creation. In fact, Guth himself recognizes you can't extend inflation into the infinite past in models that are inflating toward the future. You have to have an initial singularity and a beginning of the universe. As for quantum theory, though this has modified somewhat uh, our understanding of the origin of the universe in quantum models, the universe is still not infinite in the past. As Paul Davies says in his book About Time, recent ideas in quantum physics have changed our picture of the origin of time somewhat, but the essential conclusion remains the same, time did not exist before the Big Bang. Remember, Stephen Hawking says virtually everybody recognizes that today. The fourth argument I gave was the argument from the thermodynamic properties of the universe, and Dr. Dacey didn't respond to that. Remember that if the universe has existed for infinite time, we should be in a state of high entropy, which were not, which shows I think the universe must have begun to exist. And that gives us a cause of the universe. Now, Dr. Daisy says, well, but this is an unusual type of cause because causes precede their effects. Not at all. Often causes are simultaneous with their effects. And I would say in this case that God's causing the universe is simultaneous with the origin of the universe. He says, but God, in your case, creates out of nothing, not out of something. Well, that's true, and I don't know how God creates out of nothing, frankly, but I do know that it is doubly absurd to say that on the atheistic hypothesis, the universe comes into being totally out of nothing without any kind of cause, either a material cause or an efficient cause. So that is even worse, I think, and more unintelligible than theism. Now, what about the resurrection of Jesus? Here, Dr. Dacey simply complains that the Gospels uh, are not reliable, they're written later, and so forth. But I gave evidence to show why the Gospels are reliable in these specific respects. R.T. France, who is a British New Testament scholar, says that at the level of their literary and historical character, we have good reason to trust the Gospels seriously as a source of information on the life and teachings of Jesus. Ancient historians have sometimes remarked that the degree of skepticism with which New Testament scholars approach their sources is far greater than would be thought justified in any other branch of ancient history. Indeed, he says many ancient historians would count themselves fortunate to have four such responsible accounts written within a generation or two of the events and presented in such a wealth of early manuscript evidence. In fact, we have extraordinary evidence for the life of Jesus of Nazareth, far more than for most other figures of ancient history. And I think we have good grounds for affirming the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' belief. Dr. Dacey suggests, well, maybe someone moved the body of Jesus after temporary interment. Let me point out two things about that. Number one, there's no basis for such a hypothesis. Jewish practice was to bury the criminals on the day of their execution, and Jewish law did not permit the body to be moved later except to the family tomb. But secondly, if Joseph had moved the body, then the Jewish authorities would have pointed out the stupid blunder of the disciples when they began to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. All they had to do was get Joseph to report where he had put the body, and the whole thing would have been nipped in the bud. So I think on the basis of the evidence, we've got good grounds to believe not only that there's a personal creator of the universe, but that he's revealed himself, especially in the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth.
0: Thank you. Dr. Daisy, eight minute follow-up. Thank you. Uh, Dr.
2: Craig's overarching um, difficulty with my strategy for arguing for atheism is that uh, it presumes um, to know what things would follow from uh, God existing. But of course, no serious consideration of the question of God's existence can get off the ground without attributing some beliefs and intentions and properties to God. Well, actually, Dr. Craig has uh, explained the existence of the entire universe by doing just that. The intentions of and actions of a supernatural being. So if that's a fault with my strategy, I think it's equally a fault with his and indeed any um, attempt to think about God um, using evidence and reason. Now, against my argument from divine hiddenness, he says that. God can't force anyone to believe in him. He just has to present the opportunity for us to believe in him. But of course, if you provide someone with evidence and they, as a result, believe something, you're not forcing them to do anything. You're not coercing them. If you ask me what time it is and I show you my watch and you see it and you suddenly believe that it's, you know, eight thirty, I haven't coerced you. If that's what evidence is, your beliefs respond naturally and freely to it. Well, Sure, the probability that you will come to love God just because you believe in him is less than one. So if God wants a relationship, he can't just provide evidence. That's just the opportunity for us to come to him. But surely that beats the probability that you'll come to love a God that you believe does not exist. I mean, if God cares about our loving him, then he must care about the necessary conditions for loving him. And one of those necessary conditions is our belief in him. Why doesn't Craig take this, what seems to be a sensible position? Because he subscribes um, to an astonishing metaphysical doctrine called trans world damnation. What's that you say? Trans world damnation. Allow me to explain. Craig says it could be that God knows in advance who would freely choose to reject him, even if he did reveal himself to them. And so he refrains from revealing himself to just those individuals. Craig has even gone so far as to claim that these people suffer from, quote, trans world damnation, which refers to, quote, any person who freely does not respond to God's grace. And so is lost in every possible, sorry, every world feasible for God in which that person exists Now, by world here. He means uh, possible world. It's a philosopher's term. It's just kind of a way that that the whole uh, ball of wax, the way that the world could have turned out, but didn't in fact He writes, It is possible that the terrible price of filling heaven is also filling hell, and that in any possible world which was feasible for God, the balance between saved and lost was worse. It is possible that had God actualized a world in which there are less persons in hell, there would also have been less persons in heaven. God has actualized the world containing an optimal balance between saved and unsaved, and those who are unsaved suffer from trans-world damnation. They're damned no matter what. Wow. Well, since most people who have ever lived have never accepted Christ, we can conclude from Craig's claims that most of humanity is among the trans world damned. That means that God has just washed his hands of most of humanity. Now, on natural science, Craig alleges that science can't consider unrepeatable events, and that explains why it doesn't appeal to God because God's uh, actions are personal and unrepeatable. Well, about 65 million years ago, um, paleontology tells us, the Alvarez asteroid smacked into Mexico and killed most of everything on Earth, including uh, the dinosaurs. Now we better hope that is an unrepeating event, but nevertheless, there's a robust science about that. So it's just not true that science can't consider unrepeatable events. And believe me, scientists I know, if, if they uh, could find any evidence that God was at work in nature, they'd go for it. I mean, think of the research funding they could get. Now on the mind-body problem, he says that these connections between brain activity and mental states just establish uh, a correlation. They don't say that the mind is nothing but the brain. Um, of course, I'm not claiming that the mind is nothing but the brain. Um, The mind could be, say, what the brain does. Um, All I need to show is that the mind is dependent on the brain in a particular way. Um, He says that the mind. uh, He says that this doctrine is incompatible with freedom of the will because it means that uh, your mental states are just caused necessarily by your physical states Um, and actually he goes so far as to say that my beliefs um, are irrational if my beliefs are about uh, the mind are true because it means that they're just cause they're just part of the you know physically determined reason but of course you know reasons can be causes sometimes Um, why do you get up in the morning when the alarm goes off because you gotta go to work That's a reason, but it's also a cause. Reasons can get you out of bed in the morning. On evolution, he suggests that God could use evolution as an instrument. I suppose so, um, but then the question remains, uh, why are the works of this instrument so messy? Um, Efficiency doesn't matter to God because time doesn't matter to God, he says, I suppose the birth canal doesn't matter to God either. Let me tell you it mattered to Mary. Well, in evolution as on the top of your, you know, dresser, small change accumulates so you get enough microevolutionary events like slight modifications to an organism and you get a macroevolutionary event like the extinction or birth of a species. So if God uses evolution to create it all, then he uses microevolution and Therefore, uh, he can't escape blame for all of the manifest per- perfect imperfections that it produces. Now, as to pointless suffering, he says it's very difficult to prove that suffering is pointless. Um, how can an atheist know what reasons God might have They're unknown? Well, maybe God does have reasons that we cannot know. Then again, we can just as ma- easily imagine um, that God has reasons that we cannot know why he permits the few good things to happen to us that do, um, well, maybe they serve an ultimately higher evil, uh, which we cannot know. Maybe every silver lining has a cloud and every success is necessary to bring about a failure on a grander scale. I'm not saying that there are such unknowable evils, but just that we have no less reason to believe in them than to believe in unknowable goods. The insistence that there must be such goods which we've heard, is merely an attempt to save theism from refutation at all costs, not a rational response to any independent reasons. In the words of the great mystical philosopher, Donald Rumsfeld, there are things that we know, things that we don't know, and things that we don't know that we don't know. How, I'm wondering, does Craig know which kinds of reasons he doesn't know about? He doesn't. Well, he suggested actually one um, that uh, the evils that we see are necessary to bring as many um, believers as possible to God, he says, point to a possible world in which there was less suffering and more believers. I say the world prior to last Christmas before 200,000 people were drowned. That's the world in which, in which there were less suffering and more believers. Okay,
0: thanks. Dr. Craig, time to wrap up. Five minutes.
1: In my closing speech, I'd like to try to draw together some of the threads of the debate and see if we can come to any conclusions. Now, in my cosmological argument, uh, I offered four arguments to show that the universe began to exist. Now, two of these have not even been addressed in tonight's debate. The argument from the impossibility of forming an actual infinite by adding one member after another and the argument from thermodynamics. So that alone would give us that premise that the universe began to exist. But I think Dr. Dacey also failed to refute my argument based on the impossibility of the existence of an actual infinite because of the absurdities that would bring. And then also the evidence from the expansion of the universe. We saw that he misrepresented what Brian Greene said in the book and that in fact, even uh, with quantum theory, it doesn't uh, eliminate the beginning of the universe predicted by the big bang model. So this gives us a cause of the universe, which must be non temporal, non spatial, changeless, immaterial, powerful and personal. Those arguments were never disputed tonight. So I think we've got really good grounds for thinking that there is a personal creator of the universe. Has this creator revealed himself in the resurrection of Jesus, as I've claimed? Well, here again, we just had some general comments about the unreliability of the Gospels, which is contradicted by most ancient historians today who would regard these as very good sources. But in any case, I didn't argue tonight that the Gospels are reliable the Gospels say the tomb was empty, therefore the tomb was empty. Rather, I gave specific evidence why most scholars today think the tomb was empty, why most scholars think there were postmortem appearances. And by the way, Gerrit Ludemann does think there were postmortem appearances of Jesus. I did represent him accurately. He just tries to explain them away as hallucinations. But that won't work because you can't explain the empty tomb by hallucinations. And the disciples, if they were to hallucinate, would never have projected visions of Jesus risen from the dead. They would have projected visions of Jesus in glory, where the righteous dead went to await the resurrection. So Ludemann's hypothesis doesn't work. The origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection has never been addressed. So I think that we've got good grounds for thinking that God exists and that he's revealed himself in Jesus of Nazareth. Now, what about Dr. Daisy's arguments for atheism? He says, well, God is hidden, but notice he now has abandoned. He shifted ground from his initial statement that if God existed, he would ensure that everyone believes in him. And he's admitted that God would simply have to give good evidence that wouldn't be coercive. Well, I think he's done that in his self-revelation in nature and conscience and through his spirit. He has given sufficient evidence for anyone to make uh, a rational uh, choice to believe in him should they wish to do so. As for that stuff about trans world damnation, that was just a patent attempt to turn the tables in this argument against me. All I argued there was that that is possible. I don't say that that's true. I say that's possible. And if that's possible, it shows there's no logical contradiction between God being all powerful and all loving and some people never hearing the gospel and being lost. But that's not uh, part and parcel of the Christian faith. And. There are many Christian uh, philosophers who wouldn't agree with that. But Dr. Dacey is the one here who has the burden of proof, and he hasn't carried it. As for the success of modern science, he says science does deal with unique and unrepeatable events. No, I think he misunderstands. These are events which would recur given the same initial conditions and given the laws of nature. It's in that sense I'm saying they're repeatable, and miracles don't fit that. And that's why science doesn't take cognizance of miracles. So the premise is false, that if God were to act in the world, that this would be in ways that science must take account of. As for the mind-brain connection, he asserts, well, reasons can be causes. Not if you're a determinist, not if you're a physicalist. Causation is a one-way street. Only the body can determine the mind, not the mind the body. And that argument, therefore, is self-defeating because the only reason Dr. Dacey believes it is because he's physically determined to it. It's like having a toothache. It's neither rational nor irrational. The argument destroys itself. As for the argument from evolution, notice that I said it's invalid. It presupposes that all life on Earth is the product of purely naturalistic evolution. But only microevolution has been proven. And I don't think he disputed the point. In fact, he really turned it into the argument from evil again by saying, well, it's painful. Well, what about that argument from suffering here? He says there could be unknown evils. I agree. You cannot determine whether or not uh, something is uh, ultimately good or bad by trying to do an inductive study. The, The argument cuts both ways. But he's the one who bears the burden of proof here. He's trying to prove God cannot have a morally sufficient reason for the suffering in the world. And I think that simply is far, far beyond our ability to prove uh, and, and that, therefore, this argument is inconclusive. And, therefore, I think when you weigh the evidence for and against, the arguments for theism, I think, clearly stand out as stronger arguments. And that reason, for that reason, I am enthusiastically a Christian theist.
0: Dr. Dacy, five-minute wrap-up. Thank you.
2: Let me just try to address some of these arguments that have uh, been postponed. First, um, back to the cosmological argument, the impossibility of forming an actual infinite um, by adding things and the problem of uh, entropy and heat death. The universe would have already died out if it existed uh, infinitely. Look, if you have uh, if you think of the universe as a as an a uh, endless series of events that's always existed and existed timelessly, then these problems just simply don't arise. And presumably that's the way that uh, physicists and there's disagreement about this, right, whether the universe began to exist at a particular time or whether it's always existed. Um, Presumably, uh, that's the way it's going to be thought of is as an infinite series of events that's always been there, not as something that you additively um, create in the example that was suggested by Craig. Um, the appearances of Jesus that Gert Ludeman talks about are appearances of, of Jesus in the same sense that um, appearances of Lucy in the sky with diamonds are appearances of someone called Lucy. That is to say, Gert doesn't think that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to them. Uh, he thinks that they were having hallucinations that made them believe Jesus uh, came back from the dead. Um, notice also uh, that Craig has failed to give us a, a real explanation of this radical new kind of causation um, of God's God's action, which, again, is supposed to explain the uh, existence and nature of the universe Failed to provide a a good reason uh, why God would permit suffering. And that is actually admitted that God might have uh, unknown reasons um, for allowing some good to befall us so that uh, greater evils will befall us. That's a little bit scary to me. I mean, that's the kind of God that you might uh, fear or placate, but certainly not trust or love or worship. Um, And I. I'd be interested to hear what Dr. Craig has to say about the thought that the belief in God is not sufficient for theism um, and also that God's uh, perfect goodness really makes it impossible to trust or, or love him in in the kind of ways that we care about. Craig also failed to explain why God, if he's using evolution as an instrument, would give us um, an appendix and a blind, sorry, a blind spot and a birth canal that's not really big enough to give birth with. Um, in general, though, the problem with his responses to my arguments for atheism is that in many cases he has simply tried to sketch a scenario that's logically consistent with the facts about the world, as I've pointed them out. Um, so for example, with hiddenness, he said, well, it's logically uh, possible that, uh, God, uh, the the whole trans world damnation thing. That's logically possible. Well, it was not my burden to show uh, that this was logically incompatible with the evidence. My point is, as is always the point with evidence, you, you want to evaluate a hypothesis. You ask, um, you know, uh, what is the likelihood that we'll find certain things given the hypothesis? Remember the birthday cake in the in the oven What's the likelihood um, that you're going to find a dozen uncracked eggs um, and an unopened box of uh, uh, cake mix on the table if indeed your birthday cake had been baked? Now of course, it's logically compatible it's logically consistent. I could devise a possible world in which um, you know you find those things in the kitchen and yet your cake had been baked maybe it been baked in you know next door. Or in some other uh, possible space. Maybe it was baked in Hilbert's Hotel. But <laughs> the point is, all we have to do is show that <clears throat> uh, the the kinds of facts that I pointed to were antecedently more likely, Is more likely that we would find them given theism than given atheism. Not that there's a, any logical necessity, just that they're antecedently more likely. So in closing, let's just kind of take stock of, you know, the intellectual and moral I would say costs of clinging to theism in the face of the evidence that I presented in the way that Dr. Craig has. First you have to believe in a non-personal or sorry a non-physical person who transcends space and time and yet somehow can cause events in space time in some mysterious way that we don't know yet. Billions of ordinary people suffer from trans-world damnation possibly. Um, contemporary biology is systematically mistaken because um, God was actually doing it, not Darwinian natural selection. In fact, God is an absentee landlord who hardly ever intervenes in nature. Most of contemporary neuroscience is false um, because it says that the mind is material. And God's providential plan for creation includes malaria, tsunami, and all the rest. Or perhaps God has unknown evil purposes for permitting some good to befall us. But that's not the kind of God that I and I hope you would want to believe in. Thanks very much. I welcome your comments.
0: Thank you, Drs. Craig and Dacey. Uh, give him another hand, please. Okay, and now it's your turn. Uh, now you'll have the opportunity, as I indicated earlier, uh, those who uh, wish to address their questions to Dr. Craig, please come to this mic. Uh, those who wish to address their questions to Dr. Daisy, to the mic to my left, your right, and uh, we will go alternatively. And then, um, please, keep your questions short. Uh, the person to whom the question is uh, directed will have two minutes to respond, and then the other person will have a minute to react to that, okay. Who is first? Your question, please.
3: Um,
4: earlier, Dr. Craig, you uh, you know poked a lot of holes in the logic of uh, Dr. Dacey. and there's a reason for that. You know, anybody who's studied logic can tell you that it's a logical impossibility to prove that something does not exist. It's like you can't prove that you know the Easter Bunny or you know Tooth Fairy doesn't exist. You can't prove without a doubt that God does not exist. And so um, I think Dr. Daisy has a impossible job of proving that, um, you know, God does not exist. And there's a question that I ask of my um, theist friends is, how can you believe in something so passionately, you know, um, without any kind of uh, you know, evidence to support your beliefs? And um, to my atheist friends, I ask, how can you believe in something so passionately without any evidence to support your beliefs? And so I think it's kind of ironic that both theism and atheism requires a lot of faith on the, um, you know, believers of that. And um, and so, Dr. Craig, um, my question is, uh, you know, even if you um, are able to prove that, um, you know, there is the existence of a higher power, um, I think your job's only halfway done because, you know, um, the reason we're talking Please about... get to your question. Um, the reason that we're talking about God here is because where we're but but um, you also need to prove that, um, you know, Christianity is correct and that God is a higher power instead of, you know, Allah or, you know, Buddhist, or Zeus or
1: whatever. Well, you've raised a number of issues. Uh, I think that Dr. (laughs) Daisy was quite correct when he said that you can prove something doesn't exist. That's not a logical problem. One way would be to show a logical contradiction in the notion of something. I can prove to you that a round triangle doesn't exist, for example. But I think he's right too in saying you can provide probabilistic arguments against The existence of something is highly probable. There are no Tyrannosaurus rex living on the face of the earth today. So I think that uh, it's unfair to say that the atheist is saddled with this impossible task. Uh, But with respect to your question about my job being half done, of course, as I said, in a space of this speech, I could only present one or two arguments. I think there are lots more arguments. But I did attempt to give some justification for Christian theism. And that was the second half of the speech on the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus claimed to be the special revelation of the God of Israel, the creator of the universe. Precisely that God that had been demonstrated by the cosmological argument. So if Jesus was raised miraculously from the dead, then this would be a kind of divine vindication of Jesus' claims to be the revelation of this creator God of the universe. And that would Give us, then, the God of the Bible. So I do think that the case, though sketchy, is complete in the sense that it leaves you with Christian theism, not just with a sort of uh, bland monotheism. Thanks.
2: Well, I'm just going to savor this moment of uh, agreement between me and Bill. Okay, I'm done. Um uh,
0: <laughs> no, obviously
2: we we agree that it's it's uh, possible to give uh, evidence against the existence of something. And I would just ask the questioner whether he you know believes in the Easter Bunny. Um, actually, I think he and everyone in the audience is an atheist. Um, show of hands, who who here believes in uh, Marduk, god of the ancient Babylonians? Uh, what about Set? Anyone for Set? Egypt? Okay, we got one for Set. <laughs> Um, Quetzalcoatl, Aztecs, okay, that is to say you're all atheists with respect to the gods that you don't go for. Some of you are theists with respect to the Christian God or maybe the Muslim God and so forth. Um, That is just to say that you all think that there is such a thing as evidence that counts against the existence of a God. Um, I think our job is half done, not only Craig's but mine, because nobody can really win a debate. Of this kind of question in this amount of time, except maybe the audience. If you know, we've prompted you to think more and read more on
0: these questions. Okay, the next question goes to you, Austin. Please, short question.
4: Dr. Dayton, my understanding is that, is that the human race was created for relationship with God. If there is no God, what is the purpose of life? Why does the human race exist?
2: Okay. Thanks a lot. Uh, How much time do I have for this? Two minutes. Okay. Look, um, when people ask, what's the meaning of life? um, Actually, they're not to sound Clintonian. There are many things they could mean by uh, meaning in that sense, right? Sometimes meaning is like linguistic meaning. Um, like pass me a pass me a fork, would you please? What does that sentence mean? Sometimes, mean is the sense of uh, causal consequences. You know, uh, what will the election results mean for the future of democracy in Iraq? Um, I think it's clear in the first sense, life doesn't have a meaning, right? Because it's not a linguistic sign. It's not like a sentence or a word or a number or something. So there's no meaning in that sense. But that's okay. Um, does life have meaning in the second sense? Well, sure, because everything we do has consequences and, and those are important. But maybe what you're getting at when you say uh, meaning is sort of is life you know, worth living? Um, does it have any, any value? And I think the fact that we can even entertain that question means that it does. After all, if we thought that life weren't worth living, we just commit suicide. Um, the French writer Camus said the only truly philosophical question is, why not kill yourself? Because, of course, philosophical discourse um, is a form of life. It's a way of, of living. It's been rather lively here tonight. Just just to say that if people get up in the morning, they find things valuable, then life has meaning in that sense. Um, whether that sense is satisfying enough to you is, is going to depend on the individual. But I think that if everyone finds a life worth living and they can uh, check that against each other, discuss it amongst each other, then I think that's all the meaning um, that we could ever ask for.
1: Okay, Thank you. Well, I think you're absolutely right in saying that the reason for which we exist and we're created is to know God, to have a personal relationship with him forever. Whereas on atheism, we are basically animals. Uh, and everything we do, everything we believe, our loves, our hopes, our aspirations are just the determinations of physical stimuli. Uh, and therefore, there is no freedom. There is no ultimate uh, rationality. Everything is just Materialistic and deterministic, and I think this does evacuate love, relationships, our projects of any kind of objective significance or or meaning any more than the uh, frenetic motions of an ant heap uh, as the worker ants busy themselves with these various projects. That's really all human life reduces to, I think, on atheism. Thank you. Your question? Yeah. Okay.
4: I don't know if I can move it a little bit. We okay. Um, I think the point of a... Because I don't think... He was, like, commenting on the points you were making, and you were commenting on his intelligence okay. and his beliefs and his opinions.
1: Okay. I think you really misunderstood my argument, uh, what I was saying. I wasn't trying to cast aspersions on Dr. Dacey's intelligence or, or rationality. What I was trying to do was to show that his argument is self-defeating, that if, all of, if the mind has no influence on the body and the causation is a one-way street, that, that the mind is determined totally from the body, then everything we believe and do is determined physically and therefore uh, what we believe is no more rational than having a headache. Now, I I used Dr. Dacey, but the same would be true of myself. I could have said, my believing this argument is no more rational than my having a headache. Do you you see what I'm saying? It wasn't an attack on him. It was to try to say the argument that he gives is incapable of being rationally affirmed. So I I was directly responding to the the very arguments that he gave and the premises that he gave. In the interest of time, we're not going to have any follow-ups. I'm sorry. Well, even if it's within my two minutes? All right. You want to give her... I mean, I would time, like okay. to hear what she has. As long right. as it's in my, my
0: two minutes. Okay. Fine. Okay.
1: And just the moderator
0: of, yields. <laughs> okay.
4: Like, kind of my question was to you was also about churchgoers, like, in general. Like, that yeah. they tend to be more judgmental or prejudiced than other people. And I just want to know, like, yeah. your opinion I, I on that. I,
1: I, I don't know how you could judge that. You know... Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, because see, you're, you're making a judgment on church people right there, aren't you? I mean, I, <laughs> so, I, I, I suspect, and I mean this sincerely, I suspect that given human nature, we are all judgmental in lots of different ways. We all think we're right and we, we judge others. And I think you're quite right in saying that this is not good. This is, this is uh, not a, a, the best moral practice. And it's part probably of just the human condition that that we find ourselves in.
0: OK, that's it. Mm-hmm.
1: Austin. Yeah, well,
2: I wish Craig would just confine himself to coming after my intelligence because, you know, I already know how weak that is, but he has to go for my arguments.
0: Why, Bill? Why? <laughs>
2: um, so, I, you know, I totally agree with him on that point, although I, I don't think he's um, he's cast any aspersions on my arguments. I mean, uh, if everything's determined, uh, then we don't do anything for reasons. I'm I'm still not getting that. If um, you're there's something that causes you to get out of bed in the morning and it's your belief that you got to go to work, your belief that you got to go to work is both the cause and it's a physical cause, you know, it's what causes the, the changes in your body that get you out of bed, but it's also a reason Right. If somebody asks you um, why why are you getting out of bed, you would be correct to respond because I got to, gotta to go to work. That's what a reason is. It answers the why question. Thank
0: you, Austin. Your question. Um,
2: the guy before me kind of took part of my question, so I'm going to elaborate on it. Okay, elaborate. you may sit down. No no, <laughs> no, go ahead. No, 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 no. Go ahead. Okay. Um, my my question
4: is if 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 you are an atheist and you believe that that there is no God, there is no really there is no point to life, then why not just live sex, drugs, and rock and roll? And what causes you to be
2: good and make moral decisions? And I mean that has to come from somewhere. And so why not just live? I'm going to start right now. <laughs> See you, people. <laughs> what have I been doing here? I mean, why, like, why, why, my, my... Yeah. Well, sometimes people ask me, um, you know, you're an atheist. Uh, How come you're not just out, um, you know, looting and and pillaging and murdering? And, you know, uh, I usually just say, you know, honestly, it never occurred to me. Um, I guess the, the psychological answer is because my mom brought me up right. Um, The philosophical question then is, well, were her values good? Were they sound? Were they true? Perhaps could they be improved upon? And I think um, that ethics as uh, an enterprise of critical, rational reflection on the world and the consequences of our our behavior and our conscience can help provide some answer to that question. And so I, I would just urge you to, you know, Look into the great uh, uh, writers in ethics, and some of them are in, in the in the cr- Christian tradition, like Thomas Aquinas, his natural law theory. Um, but others are, you know, quite squarely outside it, like John Stuart Mill, um, who's known for his uh, theory of utilitarianism, which might sound familiar to uh, Americans, especially, um, that the ethical life is. Promoting the good for everyone, promoting the, uh, everyone's well-being. I think there are plenty of good arguments that can be made for that um, for that ethical system, and um, and I think my you know the ethics in which my mom brought me up square pretty, pretty well with utilitarian consequentialist calculus. But I hope that answers your question. Okay. Thank you,
1: Bill. You got a response. Well, I think that what the questioner really hits on is that on atheism there really isn't any basis for the humanistic ethics that Dr. Dacey wants to affirm. And I would commend his own book that he wrote with Louis Vaughn. The chapter on ethics is very interesting because of its honesty. And it basically comes to an, a non-conclusion at the end, that they don't know what the basis is for affirming humanistic ethics. Because on the atheistic view, human beings are just animals. And why should you promote human flourishing rather than say, guinea pig flourishing or even mosquito flourishing. What is it about human beings that makes them especially valuable or objectively uh, valuable? It's just, as Austin admitted, it's just the instilling of the residue of Christian culture in humanists from their parents and their upbringing. But on, on their philosophy, I can't see any basis for the affirmation of human value or objective standards of right and wrong. It seems to me everything becomes relative. Thank you. Your question?
3: Yeah, I just want to say it's an honor to have you personally answer my question. So thanks a lot. Um, about the nature of faith, uh, if I have the option, if I'm on a seven-story building, I have the option to either jump off the roof or take the stairs. I would say it takes less faith to take the stairs and more faith to jump off the building. Uh, if I'm going to choose a worldview or a lifestyle, I, I want to minimize faith. Uh, as much as possible. So I guess my question is is faith a necessary inconvenience? And uh is, is what? No. Is is faith a necessary inconvenience uh as far as like a belief system goes? As far as jumping off the roof would require greater faith than taking the stairs. So uh why would I uh, why subscribe to a belief that at the outset like in the Bible says this is going to require faith? I mean faith is a uh, it's kind of built into the idea of theism or the concept of the Bible. So uh um why why not minimize faith? Right. If Faith and reason seem to be kind of like two ends of uh,
1: of the spectrum. Okay, this is a really good question, uh, because I agree with you. I, I, I tend to sympathize with the attitude you're expressing. But I think what you've misunderstood is the biblical idea of faith. The biblical idea of faith is not believing in something because you don't have any good reason to. Rather, the biblical idea of faith is not a way of knowing something It is a way of trusting or making a commitment to something, which you do know. So to give an example, a few years ago, I had eye surgery, corneal surgery. Before I did that, we did all the research we could to determine the best corneal surgeon in the United States. It was a man named Perry Binder in La Jolla, California. And once we had determined that we could have absolute confidence in his ability, then I placed my faith in him to cut my eyes. And to go under the knife with him. Do you see the point? So I or would say little... that from his perspective, he wouldn't say, hey,
3: come choose me it's gonna, uh, and make sure you have a lot of faith. From his no, perspective, if he would say, would, my credentials speak no. for
1: themselves, so go ahead and choose me based on reason. Right? Well, he, would, he would give good reasons for thinking that he's a qualified surgeon. Okay. And I think in the same way, God has given good reasons to believe that he exists so that rational, reasonable faith is available to every person. So don't think of faith as something that picks up where reason leaves off. Reason, I think, demonstrates to us that God exists. And then the question of faith arises. Given that God exists, are we now going to trust our lives to Him? Are we going to commit ourselves to Him as uh, His uh, children and servants? Uh, Or are we going to separate ourselves from Him and, and go our own way? That's the real crisis of faith. It comes after reason has determined whether or not God exists. Thank you. Austin?
2: Yeah, I tend to agree that um, faith is really just a shorthand way of talking about trust based on reliability. In this case, uh, the reliability of good reasons. Um, Now, Craig is certainly not alone in thinking of faith this way, but of course, a lot of ordinary lay people don't understand it that way, um, nor do a lot of theologians. And for example, the church founder Tertullian said, I I believe because it's absurd, I believe precisely to the extent that uh, my reason cries out against it. Um, But notice that on in Craig's view, um, you have the problem of what to do when reason fails. That is when the evidence, as I've suggested tonight, uh, stacks up uh, against theism rather than, than, um, than for it, um, you might take a leap of faith, but the question is, which direction are you going to leap in? Um, as uh, Friedrich Nietzsche said, a casual stroll through the lunatic asylum convinces you that faith alone proves nothing.
0: Okay, thank you. Your question?
3: Yes, um Really, uh, an honor to have you guys here. Uh, My question was: uh, I believe that God is our creator of the universe and humans and everything else. Uh, Is one question I had, and I'm really concerned in is why do people say that we're from apes? I mean, I don't look like an ape. I mean, so I mean, how would you answer that, sir?
2: I I think you look great. No offense to the apes in the back.
0: Um,
2: yeah, that would be a cra- that would be a crazy view um, if you know Darwin was saying, you know, um, it's not that you're a monkey's uncle; it's that a monkey is your uncle, right? Because um, you're obviously not, you know, the nephew of a monkey, but. Uh, that's not what Darwin's saying. What Darwin's saying is that um, modern apes and primates share a common ancestor with modern humans. Um, so common answer with ancestor with chimps was maybe I'm not sure what the current estimate is right now, but between six and eight million years ago that there was a branching on the evolutionary tree. Um, so uh, and we are discovering new species all the time that exist on these, on these branching patterns in the, in the primate species. Um, so that's the Darwinian view. Does that sound any more plausible to you, that you share a common ancestor with, uh, with chimpanzees? I, mean, I want
3: to know, like, why do teachers and everyone say that, oh, we're from apes, you know what I mean? Why, why can't they say that we're from something
0: else?
2: <laughs> why do they say that we're from apes? You know, I would I wish I knew I would like them to stop because that's that's really not the theory of evolution. And um, it might be because in this country, uh, science courses don't don't really teach the theory of evolution as as um, as they should, because it's the foundation of all modern uh, biology. Um, But there's been a kind of a a big well-funded and uh, concerted, well-organized movement in the U.S peculiarly, you know, it's not going on in Europe, um, at least since the 20s, to sort of drive the teaching of Darwinism out of um, out of our public schools. And I I think you are uh, a fine product of that effort. So my
0: Good. Uh,
1: that's it. Thanks. Well, well, I largely agree with what Austin Dacey has said. It's important for those who are going to criticize evolutionary theory that they first understand it. And it doesn't hold that we're descended from apes. It says that apes and Homo sapiens are both descended from a common uh, hominid ancestor. But of course, that is the question. Is that what the evidence indicates? And as I suggested, I think while the evidence does support microevolution within various natural kinds, the idea that all biological life is descended from a single-celled primordial organism is an enormous uh, extrapolation beyond the evidence. I mean, just think, Of all the transitional forms that would have to exist for a bat and a whale to ultimately have a common ancestor, there would not just be a few transitional missing links. There would be literally millions and millions and millions of such transitional forms, but they're not there in the fossil record. And so I feel that there is something deeply flawed with the mechanisms of current evolutionary theory and that in this century we will see a quite different theory emerge to replace it. Okay. Thank you Bill. Thank you. Marilee?
0: Good evening. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you gentlemen for being here and also California State University. This is a great discussion. Right? Give them a big hand. <laughs> really. Thank you Marilee. You're welcome. I'm one of the coordinators of the Portray Jam on campus where uh, students and... No we, advertisement. No advertisement. No, well, anyway. Your question? So my question is... Um, how did the ancient historians describe the hair color and texture of Jesus' hair uh,
1: they, and skin
0: tone so forth? Yeah.
1: They, they, they did not. There aren't any uh, physical descriptions of what Jesus of Nazareth looked like. That was not something that was important to these biographers of Jesus. They were interested in his, his character, his sayings, and what he did rather than giving a physical description. Now, I am aware in the book of Revelation, there are images of the exalted Christ in heaven that are described where it says something like his hair was like wool and uh, his eyes were like fire. It's, It's a metaphorical description. It's not an attempt to describe the physical Jesus as he lived on earth. So don't be misled by people who would Appeal to these uh, symbolic descriptions in the book of Revelation as though these were giving a physical description of Jesus of Nazareth. We we simply don't have that for better or worse. So Jesus probably looked like a typical Jew of his day. He certainly wasn't a white, western-looking Caucasian. He would have been a, a Palestinian Jew and probably was quite unremarkable in his appearance. But we don't have any description. Thank you. Uh,
0: No, no response. Thank you. Okay, um, unfortunately, given the time, we're going to have to make uh, this question to Austin the last question. I'm terribly sorry. But we had a wonderful time. And, uh, young man, here's your question.
4: If there is no God, there would be no moral absolute, no right or wrong. If you believe this, how do we know what is right or wrong?
2: I'm very glad you asked that question, and I think it it cuts uh, to the quick some of the other points that were raised today well oftentimes it's it's thought that theism will will help you know if there's a if there's a perfect being then um, values and right and wrong can kind of depend on on God. Um, well, people have thought about that possibility and um, and they've generally come to the conclusion that it can't really work. And I'll just very quickly try to suggest why. I mean, think how how would it work? How would it be that uh, values like the value of you and me depends on on God? Could it be that God simply, you know, chooses? He just decides that humans are more valuable than than ants? Well, that doesn't seem right, because we don't suppose that if he were in a mood to he could simply stipulate, you know, that that ants are more valuable than humans, or stipulate that a lump of coal is as valuable as a human. No, it must be that God recognizes something about us that is morally relevant. So maybe it is our, our capacity to suffer, or our capacity to have plans and interests. Um, and that these facts, which are facts about us, are not facts about God. And so they don't depend on God for their existence. Um, You've probably heard that uh, the slogan, what would Jesus do? Um, I mean, it's a good question. Uh, Maybe a a better question is, why would Jesus do what Jesus would do? Um, I mean, it's not as as if he was sitting around saying, um, let he who is down with sin cast the first stone without without sin. Uh, Yeah, cast the first stone. It wasn't arbitrary, right? He had reasons for the moral decisions he made. Well, if the moral reasons that Jesus was working on are good enough for him, they should be good enough for us. W-W-J-D-W-J-W-D. That's a little bit hard to fit
1: on a t-shirt.
0: Thank you, Austin.
1: Bill. Well, I think that the questioner really makes a good point. In the absence of God... We are just animals, and animals are not moral agents. When a lion kills a zebra, it kills the zebra, but it doesn't murder it, because that's not moral, it's not a moral action. And on atheism, we are just animals, just relatively evolved primates. And therefore, it's very difficult to see on atheism what grounds there would be, as you say, for absolute right and wrong, or or good and evil. By contrast, on theism, Our moral duties are constituted by God's commandments to us. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And because these commandments are rooted in God, they constitute our absolute moral duties. And these are not arbitrary, but these are rooted in the nature of God himself as a holy and loving being. So I think theism provides a sound basis for morality where atheism provides none at all. And that would be one additional argument for the existence of God that we haven't even talked about tonight, namely moral reasons for believing in God in addition to cosmological and historical reasons.